I'd like to say good evening. Certainly another blessing to have the opportunity to be together to sing these songs and certainly to pray and communicate with our Creator. And now I hope and pray that the things that we will open up and study from the Word of God will be beneficial to you and uh, encourage you in your walk and your relationship with your Creator and your God. Yesterday we began and talked about the importance of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Tonight we're going to continue a little bit with that theme and talk about something that happened to man in the garden in the very creation that ultimately led to the fall of man, and that's the idea of deception. All of us at some point in our life have probably been deceived. We've believed a lie. We've trusted someone or trusted something and found out that it wasn't quite all that we believed it to be. And if you think about Adam and Eve in the very Garden of Eden, that was really the, the thing that led to the fall and the giving in to the temptation that led them to be disobedient to the will of God. It wasn't just an open, outright rebellion saying, I hate God, I don't want to do what God tells me to, but there was some deception involved by Satan, and Satan was very crafty. Eve knew the command of God that they were to not eat of that fruit that was in the middle of the garden. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were to leave that alone and not eat of it. And God had promised that the day that they ate thereof, they would surely die. Eve repeated that command back to Satan when Satan came and asked her the simple question, Can't you eat of every tree in the garden? She knew the command of God. She knew the expectation of God. But Satan then made a promise. As she recited God's word back to him, he twisted it and said what? That's a lie. You won't die. He said, in fact, God knows on the day you eat it, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like Him. Playing upon her pride and the lust and all the things that you and I suffer from today. And she fell into that temptation, gave in, and she ate that fruit, that lust conceived in her heart, and it brought forth sin, and sin ultimately, as we're promised in the New Testament, brought forth death and a separation from God. You know, Satan's tools aren't that different today. He operates through temptation and deceitfulness and twists and manipulates God's commands to appease our ideas sometimes, to lead us down a path that would separate us from God. We need to be aware of his devices. We need to be aware of how he operates and have some knowledge, understanding, and wisdom pertaining to that so that we cannot fall into the same trap that Adam and Eve fell into in the garden. And this evening, I want to start out by asking you a simple question. Have you ever been deceived? You know, there was a point in my life where I was deceived. I believed a lie. Elizabeth and I had been married for about six months, and the first six months of our marriage, we spent in a very small apartment. And our Saturday mornings, I was working, she was working, and breakfast consisted of Pop-Tarts or whatever we could grab very quickly out of the pantry and be on our way. Well, we moved up to East Texas, to Gallatin, and we had a little more time on our hands on Saturday mornings, it seemed like. And the first Saturday morning that we were going to be there in that house... She said, what do you want me to cook for breakfast tomorrow morning? She said, I'll cook anything that you want. And I said, well, I said, I like biscuits and gravy and bacon and sausage and eggs. She said, I've got all that. I'm going to cook that tomorrow morning for breakfast. 
So you could imagine that night, as I went to bed, the dreams that I had of what I was going to wake up to on that Saturday morning in our new home as a young married couple and the promise that she had given to me to make biscuits and gravy and bacon and sausage and eggs and all that stuff. So I wake up that Saturday morning. She's in the kitchen. I hear pots banging. I said, man, this is going to be good. And I walk in, and you can imagine the horror <laughs> on my face as I see this can of biscuits out on the counter. And I said, wait a minute. I said, what is that? She said, that's biscuits. I said, no, no, no. I said, you've deceived me. <laughs> you left me with the impression that I was going to have homemade biscuits. She said, well, they're home style. And I said, that's not the same thing. <laughs> I said, you've deceived me. I thought I knew you. And I said, please tell me you can make gravy. And she said, I've got the gravy covered. <laughs> She's come a long ways. And I'm very thankful. And I know that's kind of a silly story to introduce the topic, but all of us have been deceived. All of us have thought one thing and believed something and been misled to believe a lie. And it's one thing if it's pertaining to my wife's cooking and the deceitfulness of that, but it's totally different if we're talking about decisions that have implications upon our souls and our eternity with God. And Satan seeks opportunity to deceive us at every turn. And there are some philosophies that this world has adopted that if we're not careful, we find ourselves slipping into, which cause us to fall away from God and buy into those deceptions and find ourselves ultimately separated from God by that temptation. Tonight, I want to encourage you to be not deceived. Understand that there is an ultimate truth and that that truth will shine like a light in darkness when we truly examine it and we know the will of God. And when we have questions pertaining to the things of life, we have a source of information that we can study, we can understand, and we can make informed decisions according to the will of God. We have to recognize that Satan is a liar. He's been that way from the very beginning. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus, speaking to those who would try to claim their lineage back to Abraham and claiming that Abraham was their father, Jesus contended with them, and he said, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And too often times, Satan may add just a little twist to something that we think is the truth, and pretty soon he's got his hooks in us, and he's pulling us away from God. Anything Satan says is a lie. And we have to recognize he is the source of all lies and all deceit. And Jesus pointed that out very quickly to those scribes and Pharisees who he contended with there in John chapter 8. He said, don't try to assign yourself a relationship with God through Abraham because that's not who you're serving. Now, they were puffed up with pride and arrogance because they thought themselves highly religious people and sought an identity with God based upon a strict observance to a certain set of laws. And Jesus, throughout his ministry and his teaching, was very stern with them, reminding them that it's not just about obeying the letter of the law. Your heart has to be converted to me. And I want to tell you tonight, we could assemble the exact right way, 
We could sing and pray and preach and study the exact right way and our hearts be so far from God that I believe Jesus would have the same admonition for us tonight. Don't let us be deceived. You see, obedience, when it comes from a heart that's truly turned to God, is an obedience that's pleasing to God. The problem with these individuals is they thought their obedience would justify them before God, not having a heart that sought after God themselves. Satan has influence in this world. It's an unfortunate reality that as we look around us, we see sin, we see lives destroyed because of decisions of individuals, but behind it all is Satan, the enemy of God. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 18 in the New King James Version says, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. How many times in Jesus' ministry did He remind us that He was the manifestation of all truth? In John 14, He made that proclamation that He was the way, the truth, and the life. And the antithesis of that, the exact opposite of that, would be what we find in Satan. And guess where Satan's influence is? It's in this world. Is there any doubt that Satan carries influence in this world? Shouldn't be. Jesus referred to him as the prince of this world. Identified that, yes, Satan has power, Satan has some influence, but it's limited to this earth, and that's our testing ground, isn't it? It's through this life and the choices and the decisions we make and the life that we live that God is going to pronounce a judgment upon us based upon this life. And Satan, through his temptation and through his deceitfulness, seeks to draw us away from God during this life because that's the only opportunity he has. And we need to be aware of that and his influence that's in this world. This world's full of temptation. It seems like everywhere you turn, there is something that Satan's wanting to use to pull you away from God. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I know some of you like to fish from time to time. I've been fishing a few times. My boys love to fish, and when we have opportunity, we enjoy that time together. And we go out, and we take our poles out, and we start off with worms on the end of our hooks. And we cast those worms down into the water, and we sit, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we say, well, that's just not working. Maybe it's not the right bait. So we pull that in and we put some other lure on there. And we may try three or four different types until we finally get the fish to bite. And once we figure out what works, guess what we use? We use what works. Guess what Satan's doing with us? He's constantly switching bait trying to figure out what it is that's going to be the temptation that's going to cause us to bite down on that hook so that he can reel us away from God. 
And he might try a lot of different things. And you sit here and I say, there's nothing in this world that could tempt me to walk away from God. You know, Eve thought the same thing. Even her heart didn't say, you know what, I just want to rebel against God and be disobedient. No, she was tempted because she was drawn away of her own lust. And we all have lust. We all have things that draw us and we're tempted by. And we have to be aware of those things and also be aware of Satan constantly changing that bait until he gets his hook in us. And then the fight is on. And then it's a matter of who's going to win that fight. Be wary, be aware, keep your eyes open. Understand this world is full of temptation. This world has a lot of philosophies and ideas that ultimately the Word of God says are vain. That means they're empty, they're meaningless. They count for nothing. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. You see, God's Word provides a philosophy or a lifestyle or a manner of thought that's different from what we find in this world. And He tells us to set our, thing, set our what? Affections on the things above. To not lay up our treasures here on this earth, but to be spiritually minded even while in a carnal physical body so that we may be transcendent in our lifestyle, in our choices, in our decisions, in our conduct, in everything that we do, that it might glorify God. Because this world, guess what? Promotes ideas that would separate us from our Creator. There's four that I want to cover with you quickly this evening that I believe are very detrimental when we buy into these worldly ideas and mindsets. The first one is the culture, culture of entitlement. You say, well, what is entitlement culture? It's basically this. Because I draw breath, and because I'm living, this world owes me something. And because I wake up in the morning, then I'm owed something so that I can live, and I don't have to provide for myself or work hard or be diligent or be accountable or responsible, because someone else owes that to me. And oftentimes we treat God as if we're entitled from something from Him. What we have to realize is God doesn't owe us anything. We're His creation. He made us. Now God looks at us in loving eyes saying that you can be my children through your obedience to Jesus Christ and I want to have a relationship with you as my special creation. But our attitude toward ourselves ought to be what? I'm insignificant and I'm nothing in the presence of my God. Because when we're entitled, we forget to be thankful. How bad is it when we forget to be thankful? Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14 says, Above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You know, thankfulness is not something that we're created with. Because what are some of the first words we teach our children? Say thank you. Someone gives them something, they're just happy to have it, and they're happy to take it. And what do we do? We stop them and say, no, you say thank you. And we repetitively try to get those things into their mind. Why? Because we don't want them to feel entitled or that someone owes them anything. And you say, how is that prevalent when it comes in our relationship with God? Here's how. 
something bad happens, who do we question? You know, oftentimes we don't leave those accusations at Satan where they really belong, do we? We turn those accusations toward God. How could a just and holy God cause me to go through this time of distress? I've had moments in my life that it wasn't right, but I guarantee you I had those thoughts. This was unfair. This shouldn't happen to me. But you know what I realize now? It's life. (laughs) It's the experience of living in a fallen world where illness is a reality. Sickness and death and separation and emotional problems. Guess what? It's a reality of the existence of living in a fallen world. God doesn't owe me anything. It's through His grace and His mercy that He promises me that I can have an eternity with Him. But He doesn't owe that to me. And I can't look at God as if He owes me anything. Because I'm His servant, I'm His child, and I belong to Him to do His will. Luke chapter 17 and verse 9 says, Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. You ever felt like you did everything God's commanded you to do and you feel pretty good about yourself? Even if you did everything right and you were the perfect servant, guess what God says? You ought to look at God and say, I'm an unprofitable servant. All I did was what you expected me to do. You know, I don't praise my children when they do things that are just expected of them. I praise my children when they go above and beyond that. Because if we praise them for everything that we expect, every little thing, guess what? They become entitled. And they look at the things that they do that should be expected of them. I don't run into Josiah's room every morning when he makes his bed as he's expected to do and say, Josiah, I'm so proud of you this morning. Thank you for making your bed. That's amazing. You know why? Because that's expected. (laughs) Those are things that we say, you do this regardless. I'm not saying we don't praise our children and give them encouragement and those kind of things, but we don't do that for those type of of accomplishments because those are expected. What does God expect of us? He expects us to be loving, to be merciful, to be forgiving, to walk humbly with Him. And you and I sometimes look at that and say, look at the sacrifice that we're giving to God. Look at how good we are. And we've got that twisted, don't we? We're unprofitable servants simply doing what our Master has asked us to do to perform the commands that he's asked us to perform, and you and I ought to be thankful simply to be servants in his kingdom and not feel the sense of entitlement that's all around us. Number two, this world will tell you that riches and all the things that you can attain in this life will bring you joy, and they ultimately define who you are. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9 says, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see, when we put our trust and our faith in the things that we have the power in our mind to attain, who receives the glory for that? We do. 
And all of a sudden, we're prideful, we're arrogant, we're boastful, and we think, look at everything that I've accomplished in my life. Look at how much I've gained. Look at what I've built. Look at my life and look at me. And so many people in this world buy into that lie. They think because they have a big bank account or they have a big nice home or they drive nice vehicles that, guess what, that defines them and that gives them a certain status or notoriety within our culture. And, and God says it's not those things that define you. It's not those things that are important. He said, but if that's what you're seeking after, you're going to have a lot of problems in life. Because that greed and that covetousness is going to take hold of your heart and it's going to be very difficult for you to serve God. Is it wrong to be rich? Is it wrong to have those things? No, it's not. But when we put our faith and our trust in the riches that we can attain in this life, we've misplaced that faith and that trust in something that we think we can provide for ourselves. And our culture is inundated with that. And people look to identify themselves by these worldly ideas. You know, back home in East Texas, there was a gentleman that had a brilliant idea about 15 years ago. He had about 100 acres of land, and guess what he did? He flooded it. And he made a giant mud pit. And about five times a year, hundreds if not thousands of people come to Jacksonville, Texas. Guess what they do? They bring all their ATVs and all their four-wheelers, and they go right around in the mud, and he makes a killing. And I said, man, if I had 100 acres 15 years ago, it was a brilliant business strategy, and he's well off now. But you know, every time that that event happens or those events take place, there's trailer after trailer after trailer lined up down highway, the highway. And on the back of those trailers one day, my son... Ezra saw a bumper sticker and he said dad I like that and I said well what's it say it said he who has the most toys wins and it was one of these trailers they weren't pulling one ATV or two they had six and I said well they're going to have a good time son but I want to tell you he who has the most toys still dies and has to stand before God is it wrong to have ATVs and to have... No, it's not. But guess what? So much of our time and our identity gets caught up in those type of things. And all the while, God is saying, hey, <laughs> let me define who you are. Don't let these worldly riches and all these things that you think will bring you joy and fulfillment, don't buy into that lie. Guess what? That's what Satan wants you to believe. You know how I know that's a lie? I remember when I was 21 years old and I thought, if I could make $25,000 a year, I'd be rich, I'd be set. Well, guess what? <laughs> you know the end of the story. I made $25,000 and I said, I want 30. I want 35. I want 40. And how many people get caught up in that type of lifestyle chasing more and more and there's never an end to it, is it? If that's where your faith and your trust is, you're going to find yourself lacking and wanting and still desiring more and more, and you'll never find what you're looking for. 
All the while, Jesus is pleading with us to find fulfillment and joy in Him. Luke chapter 12 and verse 15 says, And He said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. God is not concerned about your bank account. God is not concerned about the toys that you have. God is not concerned about what you can heap up and build for yourself here. What He's concerned about is your heart and your mind being singularly focused upon Him and dedicated to His cause and His kingdom in His church. And in that, we'll reap the benefits of glory and riches for eternity. And who will be concerned about what we had here on this earth? Not a single one of us. Thirdly, this evening, I struggled to condense this point down a little bit and find some little snappy title to put on it, but there just wasn't one. Our culture wants us to believe that we're the star of our own reality show. And I know sometimes we joke about social media and we kind of turn a blind eye to it and we understand that it's not always the most productive thing, but we all do it, so we kind of just, eh, you know, it's okay. I don't really have a problem. And sometimes we diminish the problem that it actually becomes because... This is going to be one of the biggest issues in the next 10 to 15 to 20 years that our young people are going to have to deal with. And here's why. They are being trained that their identity, their value, their validation, and the reason that they matter and that they're important is tied to a profile. And I know many of us may sit here tonight and say, it's really not a problem. I want to tell you, it's a huge issue. And it's not just in the church that we are seeing problems with this. This is the entire world that's struggling with this idea. And here's why, again. They're actually going to classify a type of disorder that's called social media addiction disorder. And that's happened. Because so many young people are growing up with this medium and Instead of finding fulfillment and joy in good, solid, strong relationships with other people like we're trying to get our young people to build this week, they believe their entire identity is held within that device that we have to be tethered to at all times. And if I post something on Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat and I don't get or Instagram and I don't get the response that I think I need, all of a sudden I feel bad about myself. I've had young people come and talk to me and say that they felt a certain way because their post didn't get as many likes as someone else and they can't understand why someone else is so much more popular to them. And I try to impress upon them, it's not real. It's fake. But guess what? They've grown up in a digital age where they believe this is their life. I want you to think about how many times you've seen people gathering and with an opportunity to have face-to-face -face communication and guess what we find ourselves doing? All of us have this screen up in front of our face doing this when we have God's people all around us that we could be talking to and developing close, meaningful relationships with one another to have the encouragement that we need. But Satan, all the while, is wanting you to believe that you are the most important person in the world. The average millennial, 
Sometimes that's a bad word. We'll have over 25,000 of these in their lifetime. I want you to think for just a second, what could it be? Twenty five thousand selfies. Now, the name itself ought to tell us there might be a problem with this. Because who are we focused on as we're trying to get that perfect portrait to send out there to the world? Ourself. Are we focused on God? Are we really trying to serve Him? Or are we so caught up with our own selves that we have to send this portrait out for the entire world to find validation and importance and feel like we matter? It's sad, and I know older generations don't, just don't understand that, but this is a problem, and it's only going to get worse if we don't train our young people to be responsible and use social media in a very responsible way and not neglect the fellowship and the relationships that we need to be able to have with one another and not trust what you always see on this device. Now, of that 25,000, that estimates that that's how many they will post in their lifetime. Guess how many that will actually take? Because how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, it's not confession time yet, but how many of you have snapped a picture of yourself and then looked at it and said, no, 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 that's not good enough. Let me tilt my head this way. Let me get just the right angle. It happens, doesn't it? So maybe for that one that we post, we've taken four or five pictures of ourselves because we're that important and we want to show everybody this is how good I look today. Do we think that glorifies God? Now, I'm not saying you can't take a picture and share it on Facebook. Don't leave here tonight and say Chase hates Facebook and he's preaching against taking pictures. No, I'm not. But I'm saying if that consumes you to the point that you're doing that every single day, there might be a problem. And there might be a more productive use of our time as we consider glorifying God. And you young people that are here this week, I want you to understand the importance of putting those things down and laying those things aside and get to know other Christians for who they really are. Because if you want to really get to know who Chase Palmer is, don't go look at my Facebook profile, come to my house, and I'll have my wife make you dinner. <laughs> And we can visit and we can talk and you can really get to know who I am and what's important to me. Talk with people. Learn to communicate effectively in a personal format. Some of you may have seen this image. This was at a Texas Rangers baseball game. We weren't at that game, but when we go to a Texas Ranger game, my boys and I, we get a scorebook. And we get peanuts and a soda, and we watch the game intently, and we keep score in our scorebook. Strikes, balls, we do the whole nine yards, and we have fun with that. I look up, and guess what? There's a group of young people just snapping away. And this didn't happen just once or twice, but throughout the entire game, the announcers even went back to them time after time and said, this is what young people are into. Now, I don't think this defines all of our young people. I think we have tremendous young people who are dedicated to the cause of Christ. But if we're not careful, guess what Satan will do? He will play upon our lust. He will tempt us. And all of a sudden, 
we'll find ourselves consumed with ourselves. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ is the mindset and the lifestyle and the way He thought and the decisions He made. That ought to be what's ruling in our minds and our hearts as we consider our life in relationship with Him. What was Satan's problem? From the very beginning, his problem was his exaltation of self. In Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, as Isaiah is prophesying against the king of Babylon... He says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. What was Eve's problem in the garden? I'll know everything God knows. My eyes will be opened. I'll be like Him. Satan's problem, I will exalt myself. I'll be higher than God. I'll know more than him. I'll be more powerful than him. It's a lie. Young people, we love you and you're important, but you're not the center of the universe. And if you feel the need to share every aspect of your life because you feel you're that important, humble yourself. Take on the mindset of Jesus because there's a lot of other things we can do with our time that are much more productive uses of it. Finally this evening, the other world's vain philosophy I want to talk to you about is following the movements of men. You know, there are things that happen in this world and in our country that we get very motivated about. There are heated debates and discussions over worldly topics, aren't there? You know, I stopped watching Fox News. You know why? Because I would see a story and I would feel myself starting to get angry. And you know, me getting angry or upset about something, guess what? It wasn't changing anything in this world. It was just causing a lot of distress in my life. And it was causing me to be frustrated and focus my time and attention on other things in the big scheme of life. Guess what? It doesn't matter. But we're so easily caught up in these things. Let me give you an example. Are you a Houston Texans fan? Or a Dallas Cowboy fan? There can be some heated debates over that topic. Are you a Longhorn? Or are you a Sooner? I know, i got to be careful. I'm not in Oklahoma, but there's some Sooners around here, I know. And we get heated about things. I know sometimes it's just fun, but I know some people that their entire weekend is shot if the Sooners lose or the Longhorns lose because they've let that define them. It's a game. It's kids out there playing a game, throwing a ball around. But we invest so much time and energy into those things that it matters to us. Why? Are you an oily person? A nerium person? You work out all the time? Is your portfolio dominating your thoughts and your life? Do you get up in arms about protest and you want to go protest something? Or maybe you want to go protest the protest? Or maybe you want to go protest the protest of the protesters protesting the protest? Are you a Trump supporter or are you not? 
Does a flag get you inflamed and cause you to get very angry and upset and have emotions? These are all movements of men. These are all things that this world seems to struggle with, but as children of God, we ought to rise above these things. For our conversation, our manner of life is not subject to this world. It is in heaven with our God and our Creator. These things don't matter. I want America to be a God-fearing nation. But if it's not, does that in any way change my responsibility to my God? No. I want people in this country to come together and unify and be together in thought. If they don't, does that change what God has commanded me to do as a Christian in this life? Not one bit. Don't be distracted because I want to share with you some movements that I can't get behind. You know, back last year, there was some severe flooding in Houston. And I saw this image of this serviceman, this woman, and her child. She was stuck in her home. The waters were rising. She made contact with someone. They got and dispatched the proper authorities, and this serviceman went to her house in a boat. And he walked into that house, and he was there to help her. Do you know what she probably wasn't concerned with? I doubt she cared if he voted for Trump or not. I doubt she cared if he was a Longhorn or an Aggie or a Sooner. I doubt she cared one bit about if he felt there were issues with our country and the problems that we see and how our nation's divided. I bet she didn't care about that. You know what she cared about? Is that there was somebody there to help save her and her child from that flood. And it's amazing to me in devastating times, guess what? All that other stuff kind of goes away, doesn't it? And we get focused again on what's really important because we realize our vulnerability. I knew I'd say it. See, but we ought to have that mindset every single day. We ought to understand without God, we're nothing. That this life is a vapor, it appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And we shouldn't get caught up in all those type of issues and ideas that men like to promote. You know, as a response to that, there were churches that unified and went out into those communities and helped people with their own hands their own feet, their own tools. And they united as one and they went out into these subdivisions and started knocking doors. Can we help you tear out your sheetrock? You bet. And one house at a time, they began working together. And as they'd finish one house, those people who had their house finished would say, hey, can I come with you and help the next house? And it's amazing to see what we can do when we quit worrying about all the things that try to divide us in this world. And we truly unite for the cause of Christ. Because to me, that's the movement I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of the movement that is taking the gospel to India, that's taking the gospel to Nigeria, that's taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to Belize, that's taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to Vanuatu, that's taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to Cuba, that's taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to Plainview, Texas. 
That ought to be the movement that we dedicate our time, attention, and energy to. Because at the end, there's only one thing that really matters. And that's Jesus Christ. Have you been distracted in your mission? Have you been distracted by the movements and the things of this world? that Satan is trying to use to turn your heart and your mind away from him and to deceive you into following after him to a place of destruction. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3 says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. We've been enlisted as soldiers in the kingdom of God. We don't have time to be distracted by all the movements of men. How much more effective are we when we're all on the same page about what the mission of the church is? We make a bigger difference. And you and I can be a part of that today. To sum this all up, when we trust these vain philosophies that Satan tempts us with and tries to draw us away from God with, ultimately, guess where we end up? We hate life. That was Solomon's conclusion as he used the wisdom that God had given to him to seek out fulfillment and what was important in life, trying to discover the purpose and meaning. And here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 17, he says, Therefore I hated life. Because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. And when you trust the vain philosophies of this world, you're going to find yourself grasping at the wind. And this doesn't work, and then Satan will put something else in your path. And you'll say, well, that's what I'll give my time and my attention to, and that'll work. And you'll be empty. And at the end of it, you'll say, you know what, I hate life. You ever had somebody come to you and say they hated life? I have. They looked at their existence and say, I hate my life. But as we start to dig into why they hated life, guess what? They had tried to find their life in all these worldly things. And all the while, Jesus says, if you'll lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. <laughs> if you'll sacrifice all these things that you think are really important, you'll find what really matters. You'll find contentment and peace and joy in God. John chapter 10, Jesus once again reminds us that the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But he came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. He said, He is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Tonight, where is your life? What do you trust? Is it the vain philosophies of this world that Satan is using to turn us away from God? Or are you wholly committed to the cause of Jesus Christ? See, the Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And oftentimes we think we can have one foot in the world and we can have one foot in the kingdom and ultimately we find ourselves on shifting sand that is very unsure. Tonight you have to be wholly committed to the cause of Christ. You have to be wholly dedicated to fulfilling His will in your life. And if you'll do that, everything else will find its proper place. It's not going to be a perfect existence. You're going to struggle. You're going to have temptation. You're going to have to fight against sin. All those battles are still going to be there. 
But all the while, you can have the knowledge that you're forgiven of your sins. Jesus gave a great invitation that said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. He made a promise, didn't he? He said, if you'll turn to Him and you'll leave this world and its ideas behind, you can find peace and fulfillment and joy and rest with God. Because without God, it's a life of torment. It's a life of struggle trying to figure out what's going to work and nothing will fill that void but God. Jesus says for us to be a part of Him, we need to be baptized into His death. We need to be baptized for the remission of our sins so that we can have a holy relationship with a holy Father. So that He can welcome us in by identifying us with His Holy Spirit into His kingdom. And tonight you can do that. You can be forgiven of your sins and have the right relationship that God always intended for you to have with Him. If you're here and you've never been baptized, we plead with you to do that. But don't listen to our words, listen to the words of Christ. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you're here and you're a brother and sister in Christ and you know you've departed in your mind and in your heart from what's truly important, and you want to rededicate and refocus your life upon the cause of Jesus, turn your heart and your mind back to Him, we want to help you. And your advocate, Jesus Christ, is pleading with you tonight to come home. To lay aside the trust in this world and place it back in Him. That's why we're here tonight. And if we can help you with a spiritual need, all you've got to do is make that known by coming, having a seat on the front pew, as together we stand and sing.